So I'm Darius Kenner. Look, let's be very concrete. Look, let's be very concrete. In in this country, the bottom half of the population owns about you know between two and three percent of national wealth. Now, if if that was full equality, they should own 50 percent. I'm not saying it should be 50 percent. I'm just saying that two three percent is really small, and that uh, sure. you know maybe you know it's uh, it's I think spreading wealth and giving uh, higher access to wealth is important for our economy and for our democracy. Now, a new report shows the world's richest 10% of people are responsible for producing half of the Earth's carbon emissions, while the poorest half only produce around 10%. British charity group Oxfam issued the report on Wednesday to coincide with the ongoing UN climate change conference in Paris. The report said climate change and economic inequality are so closely linked and together pose one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century. It then stressed that rich, high emitters should be held accountable for their emissions no matter where they live. This is The Shift, a new podcast with conversations on the future of energy and climate. Now, you might have got a sense of what today's episode is going to be about. Inequality and climate change are two of the biggest challenges that we face. And both of them often force us to question the very fundamentals of the various systems that we've built around us. Economics, environment, human relationships. We seem to be all in for this game of planetary stakes poker. But like the game, in real life too, some are dealt better cards than others. And while some of these people win and keep raising the stakes, they also risk disrupting the entire game for everybody. Now the question of the 1%, the 0.1%, or the super-rich are not often talked about in the climate change debate. When we consider carbon emissions, we often look at it at the scale of nations. Even per capita emissions are discussed but as compared across countries. What we miss out on are the range of emissions within countries and more importantly, the carbon footprint of the richest. So on this podcast today, I speak with Dario Kenna, who's been focusing his research on the 1%, and their carbon emissions. Dario is an independent researcher who runs the website whygreeneconomy.org. He writes there on policies to address climate change and biodiversity loss. He has published a white paper on inequality of 1% and their carbon footprint, and you can find the link for that on this website. So here's the interview with Dario. Thanks, Dario, for joining me on this podcast. So my first question is, um, in your work, in your paper, you've borrowed from Thomas Piketty's work on inequality and carbon emissions. Uh, What are the key findings of this paper? So French economists Thomas Piketty and Lucas Chancel published a paper in November of last year where what they tried to do was to quantify uh, individuals' carbon footprints within countries around the world. So this was uh, quite novel because no one had really tried to do this. Uh, Oxfam did actually do a similar study that they published a few weeks later. Uh, So what uh, Piketty and Chancel did was they used national-level data Uh, such as uh, population, greenhouse gas emissions, and then income inequality. And they use their model to then uh, estimate different individuals by their income, uh, their carbon footprint. 
what was the result of that? Like, what did we end up seeing uh, once they've done this modeling? So, uh, unsurprisingly, um, they found that the richest people have much bigger carbon footprints okay. uh, per person compared to people below them. So, in the US, where uh, that's the country where the richest 1% have the biggest carbon footprint um, in the world, they found that in 2013, uh, around 3 million people, the richest people, uh, had a carbon footprint of around 318 uh, tons um, of CO2 equivalent and it was much lower for the income deciles below but just to compare to the poorest 10% their um, average um, carbon footprint per person was 3.6 tons um, in 2013. So what their data reveals is the huge gulf yeah. in terms of carbon footprints uh, within countries and that trend uh, applies to many countries around the world so not just the US but that's where it's most extreme yeah yeah so roughly more than 100 times uh, is, is what the footprint is of the 1% uh, and speaking of the 1% uh, can we can we try and understand who exactly uh, qualifies as the 1% and um, how does one measure their emissions uh, in the current system of complex globalized trade so there are different ways to state who is in the 1%. You could do it globally or within a country. And then even then, there are different, there are different ways to do it. It's, it's, I would say it's more a symbolic number because actually often we're talking about uh, 0.01%. Mm. Um, but uh, one way to do it is to look at uh, high net worth individuals. So uh, the World Wealth Report um, found that in 2014 um, there are around 14.6 million high net worth individuals in the world and they are people with um, at least a million dollars um, in investable wealth and that doesn't include their private residence or mm. personal items. And in terms of how to calculate uh, their emissions, um, as you said, it's, it's complicated in a globalized economy. Uh, the way, one way to do it, which is what Piketty and Chancel did, mm -hmm. also Oxfam did a similar study, is to focus on consumption-based emissions. Yeah. So not production, so not to do with factories and uh, manufacturing and uh, industry, mm. but to look at people's consumption. So that's looking at two main indicators. One is the direct emissions, so mm -hmm. that could be from driving or flying, for example, and indirect emissions, so that's from the products that you buy, whether it's meat or clothing or electronic goods. Yeah. And just quickly, this does not include their assets in terms of the houses and yachts and helicopters and things like that? No, unfortunately it doesn't. And this is a, a big gap which yeah. hopefully uh, people will now take forward uh, to try and calculate the environmental impact of an, indi uh, an, in an individual's investment because currently we don't really know. You can assume that if someone invests in an oil company that, that will have a higher carbon footprint than if they invest in an organic food company. But currently we don't have a way of correlating and identifying an individual's investments with their um, ecological footprint. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose it's safe to assume that uh, a large part of their income or wealth uh, has come from an economy that's been driven by fossil fuels. And what we're trying to do effectively is to try and move the economy away from that. So we would imagine that they would take the hit. Um, and by that logic, can we assume that the 1% is, is sort of predisposed against any policy on climate change? Are they largely climate deniers or, or are they market fundamentalists? Is there a sense of who these 1% are? So um, there's a big diversity within the richest 1% within a country or 
yeah. around the world. So just to illustrate this, within the top 10 richest people, on the one hand, we have Bill Gates, yeah. who uh, is committed to renewable energy, was at COP21, the Paris Climate Change Conference, and saying that action needs to be taken on climate change, even though he's still invested in fossil fuels yeah. as well. But he's uh, more proactive on the environment. And on the other hand, we have the Koch brothers, who um, some of their money um, originated from coal. And uh, Greenpeace has found that uh, they have spent uh, millions of dollars um, funding research that um, to cast doubt on the human role in causing climate change. So there's a big diversity within the richest people. There isn't a unified position. Um, and I'm not sure that they always even act as one, as one group. Um, which uh, again raises complexities about how a government can um, put in place policies to try and make the richest 1% within a country or the richest people within a country uh, act because uh, you cannot target them all in the same way and expect them all to behave in the same way. Yeah, yeah. I think what I found interesting in your work was one of the key departures from the existing studies on carbon accounting uh, is largely you look at nation states. Uh, because it seems relatively easier to sort of negotiate between nations and say, I need to cut this much and you need to cut this much in terms of emissions. But your your focus is on intranational, within countries. How What's the disparity and how can... So there's a clear departure from the UNFCCC model of governance, uh, of uh, government differentiated responsibilities. Um, so how, how do, I suppose, how does one look at uh, governance around these issues and um, are you undermining the UNFCCC process um, through this work? So today there's been one main conversation which has been about comparing countries' use of natural resources yeah. and at the climate change talks the heart of it has been focused on like you say, the issue of common but differentiated responsibilities. And that's mainly based on the fact that some countries, mainly in the global north, have a much bigger historical uh, carbon footprint than um, emerging economies or at uh, least developed countries. So that, that issue of um, equity and uh, historical emissions is, is still the central conversation and is crucial. I've I've attended those climate change talks and definitely uh, the issue of equity is yeah. must stay on the agenda. It's not, I'm, I'm not advocating for a bottom-up, voluntary-based approach looking at within countries and trying to ignore uh, top-down um, policies which um, get us to the aggregates that we need to in terms of reducing total emissions. What I do think is important, though, and interesting is to have another conversation alongside the, the general comparing countries and common but differentiated responsibilities is, is to talk about what's happening within countries because I feel that actually the conversation about comparing countries has actually delayed or distracted from the difficult conversations within countries about what should happen. Mm -hmm. It's meant that there's been less debate, say, in a country like the US or in a country like India about who in the US or in India is consuming the most, who has the biggest carbon footprint, and therefore who should take the most action. 
those are two very different countries. In the US, the, the poorest 50% uh, of the population, actually their carbon footprint is probably bigger than the top richest 1% in, in India, for example. So it's two different contexts. But that doesn't take away from the fact that uh, in India, the richest people will use a lot more resources than the poorest. And so yeah. having a nationwide reduction in greenhouse gas emissions should surely target mm -hmm. them more, otherwise it would be unfair. And actually to target someone who has such a tiny carbon footprint would, would basically be pointless anyway. Sure, sure. I think, I think what's interesting is my sense is that your work will have great relevance in the coming years, largely because the UNFCCC process has inadvertently moved towards a voluntary system in some sense. The entire INDC system that we have right now. Um, it's largely dependent on a non-legally binding framework with countries presenting their, their uh, emission reduction targets and then deciding to sort of meet every five years to review how, how well they've done. Um, uh, and that, the reason being that largely it's difficult to move climate change as a political issue uh, within countries as well, we've seen that. But inequality, and especially in the case of the US, has become a big issue. Um, Given, given that they are sort of not mutually exclusive, they are related to each other, um, should we give greater precedence to tackling inequality and actually fighting the 1% through, through those means? Uh, and would climate change sort of resolve itself in the process? Do you see that happening? So what I'm calling for is action to be taken on both inequality and on climate change. I'm not saying it should always happen together. Mm. There are not always causal links between the two. We yeah. need more research to figure out how actually they do um, interact. Yeah. So what I am saying is that when there are policies introduced to reduce inequality, which hopefully one day will happen in the United States, that the environment needs to be factored into that. Hmm. Otherwise, there can be unintended consequences whereby, uh, by, for example, successfully reducing um, inequality in the US, taxing the richest, redistributing that wealth, actually that could lead to the people who receive that additional income, they might then increase their carbon footprints. And that would be a problem in terms of reducing the total emissions of the US, which is what the country is just committed to doing in Paris in December at COP21. Yeah, yeah. So sticking to the 1%, uh, the big question, of course, is is even though a lot of what you've spoken so far is, is around us, is relatively obvious to all of us, it, it is increasingly difficult to rein in the 1% because of the factors we know in terms of their entrenchment in, into politics, into governance. Um, so what policies can we actually uh, muster to, to tackle the 1% and rein their carbon emissions? So there needs to be more debate on this and we need to come up with more policies and to test them and see if they would actually work. So, so far there aren't a huge range of policies for us to discuss, unfortunately, but hopefully um, now that um, the, this level of carbon inequality and income and wealth inequality is becoming clearer, there will be more of a debate. But there are a few policies which potentially would hit the richest hardest. Mm -hmm. um, mainly uh, by taxing them, but taxing, for example, the amount of flights they take. So in the UK, uh, there's research that estimates that um, just 15% of the population takes 70% of the flights mm. each year. So clearly, if you were to tax the people who are flying more frequently by yeah. a frequent flyer levy, 
they would be hit hard and you would assume that they would be the richest people. Other policies could include uh, carbon taxes, so um, making it more expensive to, to drive your car or to buy meat or those kind of products. Uh, for that to work, it would have to be at a high enough price that it actually would affect the uh, income and wealth of the richest people. Otherwise, they could just afford to continue as usual. Another policy which is more ambitious and would be difficult for a uh, political party to propose and implement, but would be to set personal carbon budgets. Hmm. And so that would actually be uh, a way of reducing the inequalities of carbon footprints within a country if suddenly in a year each person had the exact same amount that they could use up and they had to manage their uh, use of those emissions in a year themselves. That would clearly hit the people with the biggest carbon footprints the most and uh, as we know from research by Oxfam and Piketty and Chancel, they, 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 they have such uh, uh, such big carbon footprints compared to the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. But um, have, you, have you seen any successful examples of some of these policies tackling inequality but also having climate change and environment sort of linked with it? Not so far. That's partly because uh, we're in a situation where inequality is getting worse in many countries. So we're at a point where there isn't that much evidence to yeah. show that, particularly in the global north. So uh, we would we would want to see more of that. But that doesn't mean that even as a lack of evidence, maybe it doesn't mean that we cannot start to have debates and conversations about potential consequences of reducing inequality on yeah. climate change or um, trying to tackle consu consumption carbon emissions and how to do that in an equi equitable way. Yeah, yeah. Um, one, one of the challenges with uh, research of this nature is obviously one would like to see relevance in the real world and application in the real world. And for something like this, it needs to have a stronger narrative that people, campaigners, advocacy groups can use and work with and, and rally people around it. What do you see this narrative as? Uh, um, I don't know if you've thought that far with research. You're clearly dabbling with a lot of numbers at the moment. But what narrative can people use to use this work of yours? I think that the, the main narrative is about inequality. It's just also about including uh, the inequality of environmental impact within that. And also trying to address the society-wide um, level of use of natural resources so it's it's still about inequality it's still about there are un unequal distributions of power and wealth within countries mm. and there are inequalities based on gender and ethnicity yeah. and all of those issues it is it is still about that it's still a it's still a social issue yeah. um as as it were it's just uh we we can no longer separate those inequalities from also trying to address something like climate change which so far has mainly been a debate about between countries and who should do what, which, as we know, has been uh, a very long one and difficult, but we do now have an international agreement which gives the signal that says that all countries must reduce their emissions and also phase out fossil fuels. So it is mainly a social issue about inequality and trying to have more equal countries, and there are lots of reasons for doing that, um, social, economic, political reasons for doing it. So it's just about including, also addressing the environmental challenges that we face within that same conversation and not excluding it and having 
separate policies. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I may put you on the spot, uh, your paper focuses on the United States. Uh, there is uh, uh, primaries going on right now, elections are around the corner. And one of the con big contenders is Bernie Sanders, who calls himself uh, a democratic socialist, uh, who strongly believes in wealth redistribution and, and, and fighting the 1%. And uh, he has favorable views on climate change as well. Um, what do you make of him? Uh, I don't know if you've, if you've studied his policies or whatever. Uh, does, he, does he sort of strike as someone who would use your work and, and, try, and try and implement policies around that? I think mainly uh, his his positions are are very um, refreshing uh, to have someone saying uh, things like that, that that there needs to be re redistribution of wealth and things like that. Um, I think his his main uh, role, if if he's not elected uh, as the candidate for the Democrats, is to influence Clinton and force her to be more um, progressive. And Clinton has shown on, on a few things like the Keystone XL pipeline that she can be made uh, to, uh, to, to be pushed to be more ambitious, say, on uh, tackling something like climate change. So hopefully that will be the effect on, on her, is that she will be uh, forced to include uh, more rhetoric, but also actual policy proposals, and if she is elected, to implement them to uh, address inequality and also climate change. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just curious, to what what is next in terms of your work? What are the are you are you trying to like, for example, you spoke of a gap in the research with in terms of wealth. Um, are you trying to bring that into your work? And what are the other features of the work that you're doing uh, from now on? So I'm mostly going to focus on. Um, Talking, trying to get more debate about policies, like I said, taxing flights or personal carbon budgets, uh, actually targeting the richest people yeah. and trying to push that forward. As part of a discussion about what we do in society in general, so talking about the richest people in the UK and how to make them reduce the amount of flights, etc., but as a way to also um, make people think about their own hmm. carbon footprints. Uh, this is not just an issue of the richest and scapegoating them. Uh, we know that we need changes across society, changes in lifestyle and consumption behavior. So I will continue to focus on the richest for that reason, as uh, they are the most extreme um, example of conspicuous consumption and um, yeah, having a a damaging impact on the environment, but it's also a society-wide discussion. So I will continue working on that. Sounds good. Um, I suppose my my final question is, is more of a, a a value judgment that I'm. I'll request you to make. Are you positive for the future in the sense that can we? Do you see us being able to rein in the one percent, and where is it going to come from? I am optimistic. I do think that. We have to look back to previous times when uh, actually inequality has, has been addressed. The last time it was this high was in the 1920s, 1930s, around the time of the Great Depression. Uh, and then uh, governments did act. Um, there were higher um, income tax rates also going into the Second World War uh, in the US, for example. But in the UK, the welfare state was created in 1945 after a period of high inequality in the 1920s, 1930s, these things go in cycles. It's not that it's fixed that there will always be such a high level of inequality. Again, on the environment, I am, op I am optimistic that um, 
that changes will happen. I don't think they will come from people in government. I think it will be um, the, the, the general public and uh, people, as um, unfortunately, as extreme weather events uh, increase in their intensity and frequency, people in, in all countries will become more aware of uh, the fact that climate change is happening and our negative impact on the environment. And so I, I do think there will be even more pressure for um, change. Uh, so it will, it will mainly come from public pressure uh, it will not come from existing politicians yes. um, who, will, who, will, who will see that hopefully they will be forced to act. Yeah, yeah. So when this goes out to advocacy groups that I'm part of, hopefully they'll take uh, um, note of this, that you know, it, it's upon them to try and push governments and policies that are favourable to the general public. Um, so please tell us where we can read more about your work. Um, so uh, on my website, whygreeneconomy.org, you can find the two pieces of research I've done on this so far. But also there uh, are other people who are also starting to work on this. Oxfam is um, going to be doing more on this in the future. So uh, hopefully that will be linked into their work on um, inequality. So uh, hopefully you will see a lot more about this issue in other places as well. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Dario. Okay. So that was Dario Kenna an independent researcher who runs the website whygreeneconomy.org. You can find the transcript of this interview below, along with a few useful links on Dario and his work. The shift is recorded in Brighton at the University of Sussex. We bring researchers and thinkers from across the UK and hopefully the world to share their latest research on issues of energy and sustainability. Now keep an eye out for more podcasts, subscribe and share it with the social links that you can find on this page. Finally, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to co-host the show, help edit the podcast, set up an interview, or improve the podcast in any manner, please write to me on this website. Until then, keep listening to The Shift. Mm-hmm.